This season of Good is sponsored by Musicbed. Musicbed represents over 700 indie artists and composers with record label quality music for you to license. Also, check out musicbed.com for more information on their subscription service, giving you unlimited access for all your projects. As a good listener, you can get one month free off any subscription type. Just head to musicbed.com good and use coupon code good at checkout. This season of Good is also sponsored by Film Supply. Licensed stock footage from world-class filmmakers. Plus, if you're short on time, they have free footage research available to help you find exactly what you need. Learn more at filmsupply.com. One thing that when I watch Channel Zero uh, that strikes me the most, and probably why I like it so much, is you guys have this thing with symmetry um, that plays throughout a lot of the cinematography Mm -hmm. and a lot of the shows. Is that Mm -hmm. a question that you guys are having really early on? Are you guys just always looking for that sort of uh, Z-axis sort of like symmetry? That's something that I had carried with me for a long time i always just found my eye drawn to that type of work to the point that now i think i'm even consciously trying to not do it because it's just been so you know i'm just trying to challenge myself test myself but um you know i think the question of horror and symmetry i i think are related in a spiritual way and i don't know if i understood that at the time but I'm I'm coming more into an understanding of these things right now. I think, you know, horror, I had a professor in, in college. I went to USC film school and I'm, um, I, I mostly, I was technically a production student, but really I studied critical studies. And uh, he said that the reason why people are so fascinated with horror as a genre was because it was the only genre um, that really speaks directly to these questions of the supernatural and God and the soul. And I think there's something, you know, there's a symmetry to nature that's connected with the universe that we live in and the the powers that may have created it. And, you know, when you have these spiritual journeys on psychedelics, for example, the things that you see mostly are very symmetrical. You know, there is this underlying, this inherent symmetrical geometry to the fabric of our reality and our consciousness. And I think horror at its best uh, addresses these topics or, or at least alludes to them. And so I think my inclusion of the symmetry in Channel Zero and in and, and, and horror my work in horror in general, I think is an attempt at that time, a subconscious attempt to, you know, bring the on the page textual thematic uh, issues of spirituality and horror and supernatural powers with the, you know, visual uh, mechanism of symmetry that to me represents this, spiritual reality of the universe right yeah you're exactly right it is sort of this under like it feels um yeah symmetry especially in channel zero has this thing that feels like the underlying sort of cinematography of the show is actually like ahead of the audience in a way you know what i mean it's actually kind of pushing you towards something that you don't even know necessarily what's going to pay off at the end which is what exactly it's exactly what you're saying. It's like we're we're symmetric at this point, so we have to be going somewhere. You know, like this, our our mind absolutely is sort of seeking for the end of that that move. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. But on the other, you know, the, the other side of the coin is symmetry is just very easy. You right. know, it it can be lazy. It can be a lazy approach. You know, it's like, oh, it's symmetrical. Wow, we get it. Okay. Right. You know, <laughs> so you have to strike a balance. Well, tell me about the how the show kind of came to you, because obviously being such a fan of horror, um, I mean, did the show spark that? Or obviously it feels like you're the kind of fan that I would look at and be like, he's been watching horror since he was two or three. Like he's just got this ingrained sort of like knowledge of horror. But when you got this show, was it sort of like, oh my God, moment sort of thing you know like this is what all my taste has been building towards or did it kind of spark something from that 
You know, I think like the use of symmetry and its relationship with spirituality and, and cinema, I think the way that I came to Channel Zero was similar. It was more of a subconscious journey there mm. because um, it took me, it was, it was only a few years into shooting the show that I realized that I made a decision that genre filmmaking was what I wanted uh, out of my career, you know, and I had, I had been doing the reason I got the show in the first place was yes, it was because I'd shot all of these cool, you know, I hadn't really shot much horror actually, but I'd shot quite a few science fiction short films that turned out really cool. Um, and just, a lot of projects that had surrealistic and darker imagery in them. That's what led me there. And, and I think that was me, you know, subconsciously trying to manifest mm. myself a genre career because it's true. I did grow up watching all this stuff, but I never, you know, it took me a while to realize surprisingly, well, what do I want with my career? You know, what I want is to shoot the stuff that I love watching and i grew up watching and i think i was getting i was you know i was doing these things but i was kind of getting blown around by the wind you know i would shoot something that would get a lot of hype and then i would get hired to do a lot of other things like that and then those would lead me to some sort of adjacent you know sector that project that got hype and then i would get blown in that direction you know i was just sort of i was surfing on the uh the waves of momentum and success rather than sticking, you know, to one kind of goal or, you know, planting my flag and saying, this is what I want. You know, the things that I do have to be are, are designed to lead me in that direction. Yeah. What is the hardest thing to, as far as the production, the shooting of the movie, like what is the hardest thing about horror that you found? The hardest thing about horror for sure is, is um, the gags, you know, because we're not, sh we're not shooting, you know, more conventional scenes like character walks from point A to point B and enters the door and then has a conversation inside the door and then sits down at the kitchen table and has another conversation. You know, it's, it's more like someone gets thrown a window, gets thrown through a window and then a monster drops down from the sky and cuts their head off, you know? Uh, and so it's just so much more time consuming because it's very slow on set to shoot special effects, you know, makeup effects, visual effects shots. There's just a lot more planning and you get less tries and resets take longer. You know, we do things all the time, almost every day where if we didn't get it on the first take, then we have to wait 45 minutes right. to do the second take. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we're also on channel zero specifically in many horror productions, you know, they're low budget productions, which means that we don't have a ton of time to schedule. You know, we shoot in a 45 minute episode in seven days. So we're shooting, you know, five, six pages a day. You know what that's like. Um, Jesus. So, so it's like, how do you, yeah, so executing gags on a TV schedule is enormously difficult. Right. When it, when you add an element of either VFX or, you know, something that's not there, or some kind of reaction that a character has to have to something that's not there, it's hard, man, especially when mm -hmm. you get back to the edit and you start getting some VFX elements or something, you're like, dang it, I should have shot it just another way. You know what I mean? Um, I can't imagine the amplification on a TV show where it's, it's seven days, but you can't really screw up, you know, was there any, what was mm. like one of the, uh, do you have an example of something that just a day that just tanked or something that just went terribly wrong or something where you guys had to pivot on, on that show? Oh man, I, I could come up with an example like that for every week of every season. But <laughs> there was one, one that we still laugh about a lot. I mean, there's a couple, there's a couple. Um, so one of the, these things from the dream door was, and okay, so another thing is we had a lot of creatures, right? So right. the people that were, were, were tasked with designing, uh, fabricating, and then uh, puppeteering the creatures on set were totally overburdened, under budgeted, overburdened 
So I, I get it, you know, right. but often a lot of the screw ups come in that department. Um, so we did a, a scene, I think it's from the fourth episode of the dream door where it's about a woman who can manifest creatures out of doorways essentially. Mm-hmm. And she, um, manifest a rabbit out of uh, a little shed in the backyard and you know this is something that we've been talking about for weeks maybe months you know because you have to design all this stuff so far in advance and you're thinking about it and then you're seeing that not you know the, the appropriate amount of progress hasn't gotten made which makes it even more of a subjective conversation so you get to the point where you've been talking about and thinking about like what is this thing going to look like how is it going to work for months and then it all comes down to like one you know four hour block on set on one day and this rabbit it just didn't work first of all it looked ridiculous and it it was supposed to crawl out and they even designed the shed they built the shed they built the platform it was an animatronic rabbit that was supposed to crawl forward um on you know it's on its four feet and then kind of die and it so they had it, they had it on uh, two, it was sort of like two systems they were using. One was to pull it forward, which were tracks that it was on. So it could just smoothly pull forward. That worked fine. And then there was the, uh, the arm and leg motion, you know, of it, you know, pulling itself forward. That was a separate thing, right? So they had to make it seem like its arms and legs were moving in a way that made sense for how it was moving forward along the track. And they just could not match it up. They just couldn't get it to look. So it just looked like it was kind of floating and jerking its legs back and forth. Uh, and they tried so many different things. And, you know, we were getting hours behind in the head. Like the, the saddest thing was they thought they came up with something that worked. I forget what they were saying, but they were like, they were like, pull, retract. And then that was like a cute, they were like doing this cue, like set audio cue between the teams you know that were operating the different movements and it just it looked so bad the entire thing had to be replaced by cgi right i think a lot of i mean that that kind of begs another question to me is like do you feel like horror the genre has kind of stayed true to that practical element or do you feel like we're getting away from that a bit because the budgets are going down you know yeah that was one of our biggest dilemmas always on the show was, is this practical or is this VFX? Well, how much, um, do you mind me asking how, what the budget was for each episode, more or less? Yeah, I think it was about two or two and a half million dollars. Okay. Maybe a little bit more than that, like total, you know, with post for everything being combined out. But yeah, I think that's, that's my guess, yeah. Okay. Um, so... I know you were actually talking with Ian Ponsjul about this uh, VFX versus doing things practically. Right. Um, you know, we have, due to the low budget, we had very, not that, you know, the VFX people wouldn't be talented or whatever, but we just had very little faith that if we counted on the VFX for something that it might not deliver at the level we expected, especially because we saw how things turned out, you know, past season, mm-hmm. you know, the showrunner, just other projects, other things, everybody had done myself, the directors, the producers, everybody knew had had stories about VFX just looking a lot cheaper and shittier than they'd hoped. So everybody, I think we were a little too cautious about VFX. It's like the tripping over right. dollars to save dimes thing. Like we spent an enormous amount of money i'm sure tens of thousands of dollars on this fucking rabbit and then it just had to be redone in vfx because even that wasn't spending enough to get it right right you know so we that was a lesson that we learned again and again and again we sort of had this this uh mantra do it practical and then it wouldn't work and it would end up being vfx and they paid twice for it and the vfx weren't great Mm -hmm. you know so yeah i think yeah (laughs) like how do you know how do you like figure that out in pre-pro to know if something it's also one of those things that like you know do you remember when like a ton of music videos were just doing reverse stuff for like forever it felt like just like two years Mm -hmm. straight there were so many reverse things like that coldplay video exactly that and like i don't know mute math was a big one and then um 
I mean, Spike Spike Jones was doing that early, early, and it was yeah. cool. But yes. I think yeah. that was the that was kind of the the way seeing it was like you have to kind of do these things that look great, even though they are super simple to make. But the harder things in reverse actually don't look as cool in reverse. You know what I mean? Like, how do you know if something's just like a bad idea at the beginning? You know what I mean? Like, how, how could you mm -hmm. know if the rab, like this rabbit's just a bad idea? Like, how do we, right. how do we uh, get around this? You know, have you learned anything about the pre-production of that kind of stuff? I've got a couple thoughts about this. So first of all, it all comes back to the writing. I think there's just Channel Zero. I mean, our writer is so unbelievably talented and brilliant and wonderful. And the scripts were just so great. But uh, we just had too much on our plate, as is, you know, typically the case in TV and especially genre TV. You know, there was just too, there were too many gags. There were too many creatures. There were too many stunts to get them all perfectly right. You know, yeah. Um, so, you know, if we hadn't had, you know, another because the rabbit wasn't the only thing that didn't work, you know, say we had something else that we got rid of. Well, then the team would have spent that much more time on the rabbit, you know, so it's like mm -hmm. it's kind of the less you try to do, the better what you do do will be. Right. Right. So um, I think the key to getting things right is is a you know, a little bit of a sense of minimalism and stripping away things that are unnecessary. You know, what do we re need? What do we really need? What do we need to get right? And what might prevent us from getting that right? That's a big thing that we did in the Dream Door, especially as we tried, myself and the direct director tried to strip away as much as possible. Um, but, you know, people get attached to things. Right. Um, and and, and um, so they they have to happen. And But, but... I will say this, I think part of the charm of the genre of horror, our show and and so many of the films that we love is sort of the fact that they were overburdened and struggled a little bit right. to execute these things. You know, there is a, a charm and a warmth to this rabbit scene when you see it. You know, right. it's kind of cute how it looks lame, you know? Right. Um, and so it, it, it creates a sense of personality and um, friendliness almost to see the handmade kind of wonky, maybe not so perfect quality of some of these effects when they're executed. It's, it's part of it, I think. Yeah. I think I had a friend of mine actually ask you one time on Instagram, like, Hey, give me an example of like really great low budget horror. And I think your response was there aren't any. I think that's what you said. <laughs> um, do you do you still feel that way? Like, do you? I mean, are there some examples of like super low budget horror that have gags that somehow they pulled it off, or is it all that sort of like you're talking about? It's more endearing at that point where you're like, man, they really did it. But it doesn't look great, but they really did it. Mm -hmm. But is there somebody that Damn you've it. seen that's pulled it off? Well, the classic example probably is the first Evil Dead. You know, Sam Raimi made that movie for nothing, and it is just wall-to-wall -wall practical effects. And do they look photoreal? No, not at all. It looks like, you know, a bunch of film students throwing buckets of blood right. on uh, plastic limbs and stuff, you know. Uh, but is it, it is undeniably effective, you know, and it, and it works well, and it's entertaining, and it has that charm. It has both the uh, excitement and um, horror that horror should have, and it has exactly what i was describing that you know the personality and the warmth and the wonkiness that these low budget horror films have as well so i think that's a really good example what do you find is sort of the um the blending or the trend towards more psychological horror happening recently um as opposed to mm -hmm. the, um more full-on just uh, slasher films, but I think, you know, I'd like, I'd love to get your point on like the difference between psychological stuff to you, like how you would approach it sort of differently than um, something a little bit more standard horror or, or you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the psychological stuff is great because it allows you to do meaningful character work and tell emotional stories, which is always always been and, and 
is is one of the most important parts of filmmaking is right. that you know empathy and relating to what characters are going through seeing your struggles reflected in their own and that um catharsis of watching a character go through something so night nightmarish and horrific and and, and having it have you know a cleansing cathartic effect on yourself um because you felt like you've exercised some of your own demons. Um, so I think that's cool about psychological horror. I think a lot of the psychological horror that's coming out now is a little confused thematically. I don't think they always land that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they kind of allude to films they have. Uh, but I feel like a lot of psychological horror films now are really just um, emulations of psychological visual trappings and you know kind of name checking a lot of the thematic stuff and focusing on characters and having emotional scenes and emotional beats but um and i and i and i really am into these types of films like the a24 kind of right. horror films they're they're great you know i'm not knocking them but they also haven't really been landing it um fully either i think that there's i think people this is one issue with filmmaking, indie filmmaking, music videos, everything. There's just a lot of pretentiousness out there. Um, you know, people want pretentious meaning, you know, pretending to be something you're not. And in this case, it's being profound right. that they're pretending to be. Um, and I think that it's, you know, people see that this is a trend and it's possible to get films made if it like, there's things about it that, kind of hint at profound topics and issues without ever needing to actually go anywhere profound or right. meaningful. I think that's largely what we're seeing now. What is it about the films that that people are emulating though? Like what are those films to you that people are trying to emulate in that psychological um, horror genre? That's a great question. Um, I think one that's come up a couple times recently for me is uh, Possession, that film with Sam Neill from 1981. I just by, uh, someone just told me to watch this movie. Yeah, it's I, it's there's just something I think it's it's zeitgeisting right now. That's a really good example. Who stars? Um, who directed that? That's it's of like a. Eastern European name that's hard to pronounce. It's like Andrzej Zizirker or something. Right. something. <laughs> um, 1981? Yeah, 1981. Right. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Um, that's a great film. There's also films like The Exorcist, uh, Rosemary's Baby, The Tenant. Yeah. A lot of these like 70s early 80s yo the tenant i i can't watch that movie again isaac that movie's too much no? man <laughs> <laughs> that movie's too much man it's like seeing the passion of the christ you know you're like right sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you're like yeah i got it i got it i went through mm -hmm. it <laughs> but um but that is a, i mean that especially tenant that's a that's like everything that's i mean that to me is like if you're if you're talking about like what is the point of horror like the horror genre is is probably one of the more um probably one of the genres that's pushing things the most wouldn't you say as far as just things that haven't been captured on camera event you know series of events that haven't been captured on camera before like horror seems to be like one of those places that you can bring something to like that you know um, Absolutely. That's what's so exciting about it to me. I think because of like what I was talking about earlier, how horror is a genre that can, it deals with the supernatural, right. it deals with spirituality and, and all of these things can be represented in such wild visual way. Right. You know, um, it's a, it's a visual playground and that I think that aside from being a fan as an image maker myself, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so exciting to me. You know, there's just so much surreal, beautiful, dark, hypnotic imagery yeah. that you can conjure up when you're, when you're doing horror. Yeah. 
What makes something scary to you? That's a really good question. I have to admit that I've become somewhat desensitized to the scary aspect of horror watching. Um, I think scary for me, the scariest thing is when there is a character that you genuinely care about in jeopardy and you have every reason to believe they, there might not be a happy ending. Yeah. Um, that's the scariest thing, but I think scary also is, is sort of the scariest thing I can imagine in a horror film is when you're being shown, um, the dark side of spirituality. Like, you know, when, when what's being presented is materialism or evil, you know, like in another Sam Neill movie, uh, event horizon, Mm -hmm that film is pretty terrifying. And I think the reason why it's so terrifying is it's because it's about this dimension. They come back from a dimension of evil, you know? So there's this idea that the universe itself and maybe God is not a benevolent, beautiful force. It's, it is evil and dark and twisted and it wants to hurt us. Right. There are these, you know, powers out there that just delight in torturing us um, and tearing us apart. Hellraiser is about that as well. I think that's scary on an existential level. You know, that there, the idea that there are entities out there that want to harm us—that's terrifying. So, on a practical level, when you are making something that you know, this moment, this sequence, this scene is supposed to be scary. Obviously, there's things and elements that are building up to this scene, but when something needs to be shot in a scary way, how do you interpret sort of knowing what you know from what you've seen and sort of, um, you know, sponged up over the years? Like, how do you actually, uh, what are some techniques for uh, people listening, like who are actually just approaching something that needs to be scary, like shooting something on a practical level to make something a little bit more heightened? Mm-hmm. You know, I think the key thing that comes up a lot when we're on set shooting these type of things, it's the word scary isn't often brought up, but we talk about tension a lot. So I think there's a type of dramatic tension in which you, there's different types, but you are one with the character in a sense that there's something maybe around the corner and they don't know what it is and you don't know what it is. So it's about controlling the information. You know, it's like as a filmmaker, you can choose to show what might be lurking around the corner from the character, or you can choose not to show it and be their POV. And and I think if you really want, and there's arguments to be made for both. I mean, if you know that there really is something horrible around the corner, maybe that does make it more frightening, especially if the character doesn't see it coming. You know, maybe they're just casually walking toward a corner. You know that there's a monster around the corner. That's scary, right? And then it's also scary if you don't know what's around the corner, but the character thinks there might be something around the corner. So it's like, oh, shit, what's around the corner? What's around the corner? You know, so it's very much about controlling the flow of information and maintaining a sense of subjectivity with the character. So, you know, this is pretty a basic example but you know say someone's going down a dark hallway what you want to do is you know be on a wide lens close to their face so you feel like you're with them like you're intimate you're in their space um and you're pulling back you know you're staying with them they're moving slowly you're behind their head like something might come from behind them it feels you know you cut to an angle that feels like something maybe really is behind them instead of around the corner in front of them um and then you cut to back to their face, you know, you're close on their face, they're looking at the corner, and then you cut to their POV, a steady cam shot, pushing in on the corner, like starting to wrap around it as they get close to it. What's around the corner? You know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and then just trying to milk these beats right. is another key. Not You can't rush through any of this stuff because you can always chop this down to however tight you need it to be for the edit, your runtime or whatever. So on set, you know, you should just milk the shit out of it, you know? Right. Have this character walking down the hall afraid of what's around the corner for 90 seconds. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) 
What's the difference between that you found where a director has like storyboarded those moments to a T almost, and then maybe someone who like shows up to set and sort of feels those moments out? Like, have you have you experienced both uh, versions of that? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's so much to be said for both approaches. Right. Um, typically, I would say in any set piece, and I would consider uh, a suspense sequence or any moment that's supposed to be deliberately scary, I would consider that a set piece. Um, I, I think uh, you need to plan the shit out of it. You know, you want to, you want to have a clear understanding of how this is going to function in the edit mechanically. You want to be able to say, this is going to be tense or scary because of A, B, and C, because these shots are going to play together in this way. And, and that is calibrated to frighten the audience. Yeah. I can imagine, um, especially on, uh, something low budget, there's a lot of that sort of uh, maybe give me an example of coming up a little bit, shooting some lower budget stuff. Um, have you shot a low budget horror to this point or did you kind of work your way into um, more substantial stuff over time? I, I actually had a funny experience early on in my career with shooting low budget horror. I did. So I shot, the first thing I ever shot in my career was, a romantic coming of age dramedy kind of thing right out of college. And the AD on that um, about a year later hit me up about a project he was ADing. Um, and I, you know, this is at the point where I would just jump at any opportunity, right. you know, very low budget under a hundred thousand dollar horror film with a director that he'd worked with before. And he just kept trying to tell me, Hey, you know, you know, it's not that great, you know, but I was just so excited. I was right. like, Oh my God, I'm going to shoot another movie. At that time, I believe it was called night passage. I read the script. I kind of liked it. You know, it was, so it was about, it's, it's, it was about a group of filmmakers who had a couple failures in a row. Like it was a core team that worked together, the director, the producer, the cinematographer, the editor, the production designer, they, they had all worked together. They were a team that had worked together on multiple films that had been financed by the executive producer who happened to be the director's wife. Mm. And they had multiple flops in a row. And they were, they were on a yacht that was supposed to be this big celebratory um, you know, party to, to celebrate the release of their latest film, which it turns out is a flop. Um, I guess it's opening night or opening weekend and the numbers are really bad or something. And... So they have decided that they're going to pitch their next idea to the wife because they're certain that it's going to be a hit. They know that they've had two flops, but they just need the money for the third film and it's going to be a hit. So she says no. And they murder her. They throw her body overboard. Perfect. And then cut to two years later, they're on the same yacht. That's the only location we're ever on. They're on the yacht and they're, they are having a big party celebrating the release of their latest film, which is a smash success. Just like they predicted, you know, if you'd only given them the money, but they killed her. So the director inherited all of her money and then used that to finance the film. Right. So be clear, you did the, shoot this. Yeah, I did yeah. shoot. This. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What is it called? So there, <laughs> At that time, it was called Night Passage. Then they changed okay. the name to Marina Murders. Okay. Um, and so, okay, so then uh, they're all partying, and they have, this is kind of where I started to realize the film wasn't what I thought it was going to be. They, they bring all of these, like, prostitutes and groupies and stuff, you know, because they're these sleazy, they're all men, and they're all right. kind of sleazy. And, um, and they pretty much, they have some dialogue doing the exposition, explaining what happened, and they all split off, go to different places. And then uh, each of them essentially brings a romantic partner along with them to the cabin, the engine room, where they make love. And <laughs> when I say make love, I mean uh, have soft core porn sex. Yeah. Um, and, and just right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And and then they all get murdered by this mysterious silhouette woman who is wearing the same dress and appears to be the wife that they killed a year yeah. ago. So or two years ago. So it's like I know what you did last summer, kind of flash like ghost. Uh, and they all get brutally murdered. Uh, and then at the end, you find out that the person who's murdering them is actually the maid of the boat of the yacht who was the lesbian lover of the executive producer slash director's wife that they killed and the ep and the maid had been planning to run away together and start a new you know beautiful life together uh just days after she the the wife was murdered so now she's getting her revenge beautiful um yeah yeah and (laughs) This film, we probably made it, we shot it in eight days, wow. all in the harbor, on a yacht that was blacked out. The director uh, was, this film never came out and there's no information about it online. So uh, it was starring all these like weird people. Like there was actual like aging softcore porn star. There was a cam girl. There was a couple like soap opera type of people. There was even an ex-boy band member. And it was just, super, super sleazy, you know, like it was, we spent 70% of the shoot just shooting these sex scenes. You know what I mean? It truly was basically a softcore movie. And you um, didn't know you this know, going into it. No, no. And it was just, gr- it was just topless grinding. Like you never saw like below the belt, you know, it was just like the woman and the man were topless, like in bed, in the shower or whatever, just sort of like grinding on each other. Yeah. Uh, and then the door would open and then this like woman, silhouetted woman holding a knife would appear. And then we didn't even have enough money to shoot the actual murder. Right. So it would just be like, they were then found dead later with like blood splattered everywhere. The director was uh, too um, overweight to fit into any of the rooms that we were shooting in. And we were so low budget that we didn't have a monitor to monitor to like for him to even be looking oh. at the image we were shooting this on the 5d of course so he directed almost the entire film by intuition from uh an adjacent space and he would he actually i'm not sure if he had these powers or not but he told everybody that he had the power to see what was happening even though he couldn't physically see it with his eyes so he would give at the actors directions in the middle of performances and and everything as if he was actually watching it like he would say like I need your eyes bigger, like a silver dollar. No, no, bigger than that. Bigger. But he wasn't yes, actually yes, looking. That's it. No, no, he couldn't see a thing. <laughs> this season of Good is sponsored by Musicbed. We had the chance to sit down with their CEO, Daniel McCarthy, to talk about why Musicbed exists and how they're helping creatives further their craft. We felt like there was all these indie filmmakers and a ton of indie musicians and they needed each other. Um, like we all know, like the best films are a marriage between the moving picture and music. I view it as an ongoing ecosystem that continues to, you know, increase the value of art, that continues to allow artists to support other artists. Thanks again to Musicbed for sponsoring this season of Good. As a good listener, you can get one month subscription free if you go to musicbed.com good. This season of Good is also sponsored by Film Supply. Here's their CEO, Daniel McCarthy, again on what makes Film Supply the best stock footage resource for films. The footage being licensed is the footage coming out of passion projects from filmmakers, and, and it's because it is the most authentic, cinematic, and it's, the, it's all the stuff that all the filmmakers have put all their blood, sweat, and tears into, and it shows. Like, you look at a clip, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's emotive. I want to use that. The guys that just go out there and shoot a day for stock, like... That's not who we are. I mean, that's not what we're about. Like, we're about helping filmmakers fund passion projects and seeing the footage from these passion projects actually get used in commercial ways. Thanks again to Film Supply for sponsoring this season of Good. With Film Supply, you can license stock footage from world-class filmmakers like El Ginter, Diego Contreras, Masio Frost, and more. Plus, if you're short on time, they have free footage research available to help you find exactly what you need. Learn more at filmsupply.com. What's one quality you look for in a collaborator? I think there's, there's, I mean, collaboration is everything in filmmaking. You know, you could talk about collaboration endlessly, 
Um, but I think for me, the most important thing about a collaborator is probably their willingness and excitement to collaborate. You know, you want someone that as soon as you start talking to them, your idea, you know, you just can't stop and ideas are building and, you know, you're throwing stuff around and everything seems to be building on, on the last thing, just a, a shared sense of excitement. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like this. Um, another director said the other day, like this sense that like someone's just going to go to war with you almost as well. Like this, mm. like the idea mm-hmm. that, you you can you can push as hard as you can and they'll be right by you you know you know i we get this question a lot like how to build sort of your circle of collaborators you know um and obviously they change and they sort of fluctuate but um you know starting out how important is that and how do you build that that's a great question and and it's so critical i think to find those people um i think I think it's very easy to gravitate toward people that are interested in you and want to hire you and want to collaborate with you and associate with you. Uh, and so I think a lot of people, myself included, and, you know, have been um, found ourselves in collaborative relationships with people that aren't necessarily actually the people who we are connected with most creatively. Right. I think it has to be a bit more of an active process and more of a curated thing. Um, I think obviously shared sensibilities are really good. Um, I, I look for people that aren't because so many people seem to be, especially in the commercial music video space, there, there seems to be a coalescing around a homogenized type of aesthetic. Um, and I try, the first thing I look for is people who are doing work that exists outside of that. Right. Um, and then more specifically in a way that, you know, I find appealing, you know, I like to use, I like, you know, basic stuff, you know, I like to use wide lenses. I like surrealistic imagery. I like trippy stuff. I like dark stuff. I like sensual stuff. Um, so I think you have to, in order to figure out who you want to work with and who you should be collaborating with, it's really more than anything, it's a process of self-discovery. And I think the reason why it took me so long to start working with the type of filmmakers that I ought to be working with is because it took me so long to figure out who I was as an artist. That's a great point. Cause a lot of times I didn't even know necessarily what I wanted when I was younger for sure. Right, right. You, you have to know what you want before you know who you want to do it with. Right. Cause the path, the, the, the path sort of narrows the further, the deeper you go with your own sort of taste and, and collection of ideas and stuff. There's only a certain amount of people who sort of fit along with those at, at certain points, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's like any taste, the more specific you get, the more you can branch down into finding out what really turns you yeah. on, you know? What's your uh, biggest pet peeve on set? There's, I, I, I mean, there's so many things that happen on set that can be frustrating. I think my biggest pet peeve are inaccurate time estimates. I mean, I don't think that's the biggest one. There's just so many that are equal. When someone, such a when another one. department, yeah, you know, it's like, okay, it's okay to take however long you need to do to do what you need to do. You just need to be upfront about what right. that time is before we you know, start to sit around waiting for it. Yeah. That's such, it's, especially when you have a good AD, he'll go up to yeah. the DP and be just like, all right, how long do you need? And they'll say, um, two minutes. And he's like, all right, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. they just kind of know, right. they can kind of learn mm-hmm. really quickly how long a certain department is sort of undershooting their time estimates. Right. And <laughs> I, I make a yeah. conscious effort to not be that two minute yeah. guy. Be a realist. That's a good, I mean, but yeah. that's such good etiquette though, dude. A lot of people wouldn't think about that or say that, but that's something that is so important to just know. Um, Cause minutes are so valuable, man. Minutes, especially when exactly, you're trying to do exactly. eight pages a day or nine right. pages a day. It's, it's like, dude, I can't, I can't be over mm-hmm. 15 minutes. You know, I have to be ahead. I mean, this is open-ended, but I, I would like to get your idea because what is success to you? You know, like what is the, 
not the end of the journey, but like, what is the, the thing that sort of solidifies in you as something successful? I think success is being able to work on the projects that you'd like to work on. You know, for me, it's working at a higher level in genre. You know, it's doing horror films, sci-fi films, action films that are, uh, you know, maybe uh, hopefully one day at the very top, but at least, you know, things that have budgets where I can, I can make a living only doing that instead of having to ever take a job where it's like, oh, oh okay, I'll do this for the money or whatever. Right. You know, I'd love to just make more than enough money also doing what I would happily do for free if money didn't exist in this world. Right. You know, I think, yeah. If I was starting out as a cinematographer, I feel like there's a misconception that commercials can kind of bring you to a place where you're, you, you can, you know, ultimately a cinematographer usually wants to do movies, wants to make films. That's kind of the end of the road for them. But the path there, a lot of times I feel like cinematographers are getting sidetracked with other things, whether it's commercials or music videos or, or whatever. But is there, um, have you found that doing sort of the narrative stuff or like pursuit of the actual thing that you've been doing helps you get commercial work more so than if you went the other way. Do you know what I mean by that? Like about, about the balance between commercial and music video work and narrative work and, if, and how they play with each other. Well, I guess like the, the idea that like, okay, I'll, I can, I'll do enough, you know, there's one state of mind that's like, I'll do enough commercials that, I'll get good enough that one day someone will give me a movie mm. or something, you know, mm -hmm. or if mm -hmm. I do a right music video for a certain artist, then, you know, somebody will see me, but instead of just doing the thing yourself the hard way and then mm -hmm. the commercial st stuff on, on the side kind of comes later a little bit more of a steady game. But um, I don't know. It's, it's, I guess it's that idea that like cinematographers need stability, but I feel like, do you feel like they get lost a little bit? in the, uh, the come up game of, of shooting as much as possible. Absolutely. And, and directors do too. For sure. Um, I think this is something that you and Jared have discussed on this podcast several times, I believe. Yeah. Um, I, I, this is a, such a big question. Yeah. I think it's very easy. You know, it's the path of least resistance to shoot music videos and commercials, right? They're just always happening. You can, yeah. there's a lot of entry level stuff that you can get that, quickly leads to like just above entry level stuff. Um, and you can really start to build a career for yourself and a living for yourself. And so there's just this tremendous gravitational pull toward that type of work as, you know, young freelance filmmaker, which I totally empathize with. And you know what, that's what happened to me. Um, that's, you know, that was my path. Um, but I, now that I am doing uh, much more narrative work. I have had the opportunity to work with so many uh, directors and writers and producers and all these, these people that work in narrative and, and almost none of them came up that way. They all just, mm. the way that they got to be successful in the narrative world was they never even considered music videos or commercials as an option. They were just like, that wasn't even, a, this decision wasn't even a factor for them. Right. They just started making movies, right? Yeah. Um, so I have to say now that I've become more established and successful in that world, the people that I meet that are there, they didn't come up doing music videos and commercials. And yeah. even if you look at a lot of the successful DPs, they didn't come up doing music videos and commercials. You know, they got established from doing small films. Yeah short films before that, some of them, you know. So I have to say, I, I don't like to give advice that I myself yeah, didn't sure. take. And I did not take this advice. I did it the commercial music video way. But from what I'm seeing, it seems like there's a lot of merit to just pursuing the narrative thing full force right away, if that's what, what you want to do. And, and, and I know so many filmmakers that have said that they were going to use music videos and right. commercials to get to narrative stuff. And now they don't even talk about it anymore. Nope. 
it almost gets harder, right? Because mm -hmm. you have more, you have more, um, I got more things I got to pay for. Like you just get older too. Yeah. Like you got, you get married, you get kids or whatever. Like you just, your monthly expenses. That's why I always tell people, oh, yeah. like don't, you know, life. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot to say about being young and trying to, and trying to do what we're doing. You know what I mean? Not being young per se, but just, um, you know, having nothing to lose. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot more to lose, especially now. I mean, you, you, there, there's a lot more to lose for you. I mean, you're obviously your taste and you have, you have a little bit more knowledge of what projects not to take at this point, you know, that aren't just are not going to be good for your career. But, um, you know, early on you, you didn't really have those, uh, those sort of boundaries to, to not take shitty work. And you learned a lot from those things, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I, and I, I think it's, I, I mean, I wish that I had gone to film school. I wish I could have afforded it or got the grades or mm -hmm. had the wherewithal mm -hmm. to like try. Um, mm -hmm. but there's something to say about like creating your own film school in a way on just, just making shit. You know, commercials don't, you can't Absolutely. really do that with commercials, you know, you re really can only do it with passion projects or, um, or features or, or something low budget to just actually see if you're good, you know, like just to actually work the muscles, you know? Um, well, let me ask you this on that topic then. What, what's something that you would tell your younger self starting out? You know, I guess I'm, on, I, I feel two different ways about this because there's part of me that thinks that everything that happens to you, all of the mistakes, all of the obstacles, all of the dead ends, that that is just such an important part of being human and building resilience uh, and strength, right? Right. So, and, you know, so many of the worst mistakes I've made, you know, they're an important part of who I am not just career mistakes, but just mis life mistakes, you know? And, and so I, I, I just wonder if you had the opportunity to tell your younger self something that would actually materially help them, could that hurt them more in a way? Right. Yeah. If, if you, you know, it makes their, their journey easier because journeys, they're not meant to be easy. You know, life is here to challenge us. And we're meant to struggle and we're meant to suffer. So I just wonder, but if I, but it, that aside, if I were to go, <laughs> if I were to go back and talk to my younger self, I would definitely tell them to uh, think hard about what I wanted. And, you know, I might, I might, be inclined not to tell them that it's genre filmmaking, but I'm right, right. right. And to, to focus, focus on what I want to do for the rest of my life rather than just the shiny object in front of me. Cause you know, the first 10 years of my career, it was just, as soon as I, you know, struck gold, I would just keep mining where I found that, you know? Um, and it just led me down so many paths that had, that weren't leading me uh, toward where I, it turned out I was ultimately going at all. And so I kept hitting all these dead ends and I kept getting pigeonholed and, you know, put in a box, so to speak. Now my whole thing is you're going to get put in a box no matter what by other people, you know, people, they're very judgmental. They see you, our, our minds, they, they categorize stuff. It's a, it's a survival mechanism, right? So we see something, we categorize it. And we do that with other people too. We're like, oh, Isaac, he's a horror DP, you know? So people are always going to do that. Even if you don't do that with yourself on an emotional level, people are, are you're always going to be perceived a certain way in a marketplace and it's a, it's a narrow way. So you have to really, you know, define your brand, so to speak, um, <clears throat> in order to have the, to be on the path that you want, you have to be intentional about it. So my advice to my younger self would, is, is be very intentional about what you want and where you're going to go because people see what you're working on and you only get hired to do what you've done before well and then you get sucked into that mm. so Dude, it, on that point is is a cinematographer's brand only the work at this point 
at this in this day and age like is that the brand of a cinematographer is the work no no definitely not you know i think it's and it's not just dp it's everybody i mean just now in the age of social media and instagram and yeah and all that stuff it's i think it's a personality brand addition to the work yeah do you get frustrated both, with that side of it though i do yeah because they're both it's just so hard to it feels like like i'm talking about it makes you feel like what you show and how you live and all of that has to be part of a brand right. like a brand identity instead of just an authentic day-to-day -day experience of a biological organism you know yeah. <laughs> um so but i think you know it also feels frustrating i know jared's talked about this when he sees people you know, flexing about, you know, working and traveling and all that stuff. Right. It feels frustrating getting drawn into having to compete on that kind of narcissistic level, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's like, do I have to behave narcissistically to become successful? Right. You would think so if you paid attention to right. uh, some of the more successful cinematographers and directors. You would think, you'd think so. Um, and so the question is, do I do that? Do I engage with that? Is this a necessity? Maybe they're not truly narcissistic. Maybe they're just smart business people. Right. Um, or, uh, so is it, is it, you know, ego? Is it narcissism? Is it, you know, just human ugliness? Or is it just a business necessity to behave in this way? it's a question that I have not answered. So yeah. I can't really tell you. It's difficult because like, I don't know. I, I'm such a fan of filmmaking that it's hard for me to um, agree or even really want to hang out with somebody who isn't as much of a fan of it as I am. You know what I mean? Like, I may not know everything about every genre, but what I know about, it's pretty, it's pretty heavy, you know, like it's pretty thick of the movies that I've decided to sort of put in my life. But I don't know. It, mm -hmm. it feels, it feels a little bit like a turnoff at this point when, um, I don't know when I don't, and I can't just visibly see obsession, you know, like when I see mm. obsession sort of put in the wrong place, I get frustrated mm. by that. And I, I, I'm somebody who, I mean, when I look mm. at, Isaac Bauman's work, I'm like, I don't give a, I mean, I care about Isaac Bauman, but like, I don't give a shit about anything else. Like, I'm so mm -hmm. much in tune with the images that you're making that the work almost creates a personality mm -hmm. of yourself. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. That's, I, I find it frustrating for that reason because I, I, I do, um, I do try to just, connect with people who I'm like that work mm -hmm, the is, work yeah yeah I think I, I agree with you I think that's kind of where I'm leaning right now I'm still trying to figure this out and you know it's okay it's like we're all learning as we go you know it's okay <laughs> to make even mistakes with all this stuff you know I've made mistake after mistake in, in every aspect of my life my career my social media persona everything right yeah. but kind of where I'm going right now with it is I think it's probably better to withdraw to a certain extent and yes let the work speak for itself you know yeah. it's better maybe to just be a little bit more mysterious and focused on the work you know because at the end of the day we're all just people you know we you know we get it like oh you're you're posturing yeah you know? yeah like it's exhaust it's exhausting it's exhausting just no no i'm done um I'm going to be mysterious, more mysterious. Yeah. Stop, stop answering that question. <laughs> Who knows what I think? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Don't forget, this season of Good is sponsored by Musicbed. Go to musicbed.com to check out over 700 indie artists and composers with record label quality music. And remember, as a good listener, you can get one month free off any subscription type. Just head to musicbed.com slash good and use coupon code good at checkout. This season of good is also sponsored by Film Supply. 
licensed stock footage from world-class filmmakers. And do not forget to take advantage of features like shoots and scenes, craft an entire narrative with extensive collections featuring the same talent and settings. Plus, if you're short on time, they have free footage research available to help you find exactly what you need. Learn more at filmsupply.com.